I think I think one one thing I didn't mention is you know you know what I said about the end of Hollywood in the late '90s, sort of a, a delayed end of history than the the Fukuyama end of history, so the end yeah. of or Hollywood history. Um, it coincided also with the the um, birth of digital film watching. Mm. So, so what what happens is so there's a, there's been a lot of writing about what is what what is lost with digital film. So basically, the idea that you have um, in film you have a, a like, like a semiotic a real imprint of the real. So it's a photographic memory of something that was there. Whereas the, a digital photography is, is a human algorithm that imitates cameras. So it's, it has lost this connection to the real world. It's, it's basically binary codes, how we imagine a camera is. And, and I think that has a lot to do with how serious people take film. And I've, I mean, there have been studies about how much are you invest how much people are invested in cinematic films made on film cinematic films shown digitally and cinematic films filmed digitally and and there's a great difference between art house films that are shown digitally and or are filmed digitally or are made digitally and the the emotional investment in digital projection is completely different than emotional investment in filmic projection It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, and it's Oscars time. What does this have to do with the end of the end of history? We're going to find out shortly. Alpha Bunga Bunga today is myself, Alex Hochuli, George Hoare in London, and Ben Fogel in São Paulo. Also joining us, a return guest, Marin Tom, who teaches film at the Queen Mary of the University of London, to talk us through how Hollywood has cancelled itself. You may have noticed that many institutions in today's world are desperate to seem relevant. How has this affected Hollywood's output, and how does this affect film criticism in turn? You may have noticed a certain boneheaded literalism in a lot of film criticism. We're going to explore all this. But before I hand over to George, remember to check out our Patreon at patreon.com bungacast. Donate if you like what we're doing, it'll help us grow and expand. And also please drop us a review on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on Facebook. That's all, on with the show. George, take it away. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Action. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Marin, so uh, last year, l- listeners who were with us at that, that, at that point um, heard you uh, give your opinion on The Shape of Water as the worst film of the year, <laughs> the sort of film that a male feminist would make. Um, <laughs> what was the worst film of, of this year? Or are you still so annoyed about Shape of Water you want to give it another kicking? Um, I... I, I've tried to sort of put it into my subconscious and not think about it. And the good thing is, 
I didn't have to because I don't think it became very successful. People didn't watch it. It didn't become a thing afterwards, after the Oscars. It has not been talked about. It became didn't come up anymore. So, yeah. There weren't even many, like, fish-fucking memes. I don't know. I didn't see Not any. at all. It died after the Oscars. And, uh, yeah, probably thanks to my review. But also... <laughs> <laughs> but I think also because... Um, as you know, the, the last year's Oscars was the lowest viewing figures of all time for the wow. Oscars, 2018. And, uh, you know, f- Trump famously tweeted, ah, ah, you know, Oscars are so irrelevant. You know, as usual, he was probably right, but as usual, he's a pig and wrote like a pig about it on Twitter. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've made it a point of not watching bad films because I don't have that much money and I have a life. But but I did have a lot of, I did watch a lot of movies this year and I had a good time in the cinema this year. But I did manage to watch bad films by accident. So I went to see uh, um, Ocean's 8 by accident. That was mm. a mistake. Um, so what, the, was the, 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 what was the nature of the accident that, that led to this? Uh, did you just... <laughs> fall into the no, no. cinema? Yeah, yeah, basically. No, my, my, my friend, I have got um, different friends with whom I watch different films with, and I've got one friend, uh, my blockbuster friend, and she said, <laughs> hey, let's go to the cinema. And I just go, yeah, why not? And the only thing that was on was Ocean's 8, and I thought, oh, how bad can it be? Come on. And, yeah, no, it was really bad. And but basically, what was bad about a film, and um, a good criteria for bad films, is that they don't deliver. So... I know it was basically, uh, you know, a switch around film where they switched all the male roles with female roles. I thought, oh, okay, I'm I'm ready for this. But what I wanted is a good heist film, and I they didn't deliver. It was predictable. It was boring. Had bad performances. So I thought, oh, it's not even a good heist film. On so, on that on that note, what did you make of Widows? Because that description that you just gave. Some people <laughs> might apply to that film as well. Yeah, but on the other hand, Widows, you know, it wasn't a good heist film, but it was beautiful film, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. So, so it had qualities that were bigger than its subject matter, which I think that made up for it. So I really liked, I like all Steve McQueen films. I think Steve McQueen is a great filmmaker. Um, I don't think the substance goes beyond it, but he, he's really an accomplished um, visual storyteller. Mm. And I think this is why I really liked it. There's out of frame, Ocean's 8 seemed particularly a new level of cynicism, but it's the remake of a remake, <laughs> which you don't really have to swap <laughs> roles. You don't really have to even like write a new script. So it's kind of very cheap and unoriginal and certified to make some money. So it's like a no risk, uh, no effort film. No risk, no effort. Um, and um, usually you have, you know, for example, the, the Ghostbusters movie, the, the, the switch around remake. So you had, um, a, a re- again, a really weak script, but you had um, actresses who made up for it because they were improvisers. So you can throw shitty lines at them and they will make it funny. So um, Mr. McCarthy and Kim McKinnon and so on, they, they can just make anything funny. And you don't have that with Ocean's 8 because you've got serious movies actors and they need good writing and good script to be actually good. And if they don't have that, 
it's it's very odd, basically a stone. And then you've got Rihanna in this as well as a as a kind of an entity. I can't, I can't really call it an actress, but yeah, you know, Rihanna just... <laughs> So, but uh, basically, the idea that that a bad film is a film that doesn't deliver what you expect it to. So, for example, I went also to see um, the, the the Harry Potter one with, with the Crimes of Grindelwald. I went to see that with my nieces, and their only desire to go and see the movies is to watch cute animals. And I think that's a really good uh, reason to go and watch a movie. And so they were really disappointed that that film didn't have any fantastic beasts in it. And I thought, yeah, that's a good criticism. <laughs> Apart from the plot holes and the craziness and the bad acting and the bad writing, the fact that there are no fantastic beasts in it is the best criticism of this bad movie. Well, and if, if you want to so, talk about being undercut by new media, you know, cute animals, you've got the, the internet coming in pretty strong there. Like, you don't need to go to the cinema to see cute animals. There's, like, loads of them on the internet. I don't know if you've noticed. There's, like, cats and, and I mean, otters, <laughs> all sorts of animals. So, you know, it, it, yeah. cinema is gonna, has a real sort of challenge there on its hands. Yes, I know. Um, but, but, you know, you want it to be a collective experience at some point. You know, you want to experience cute animals with other people. <laughs> but no, I actually have to go to a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did that afterwards to make up for that disappointing experience. So speaking of classifying films uh, into groups, we were looking through the Oscar nominations and they seem... I mean, maybe this is just my impression, but abnormally concentrated in quite a few number of films, or sorry, a small number of films. Uh, and the main, you know, best uh, film, best director nominations, if I could be really crude, you could classify them as music films and black or racism films. Uh, would that be <laughs> would that be fair? And actually, there's one or two in which uh, the categories even overlap. So you kind of have you have a bit of both. You have racism and music. Racism and music, I think. Yeah, so. Um, music is, is always a good one with Hollywood because um, Hollywood, one of the criteria of Hollywood films is uh, always that they love to make stories about themselves. So films mm -hmm. about performance uh, that are also musicals will always be a big hit. And so, as I said before, the idea that the Oscars um, strive for relevancy is a, is a big, big subject. So... Uh, I don't know if you remember, they tried to introduce a new category in August. No, they, tell us about they, this. Yeah? So, um, so fiasco last... Um, it's not just last year. So the, the viewing figures of the Oscars, um, if we want to take that as an indicator of their relevancy, they, they've been going down steadily since the beginning of the millennium. So... You know, the, the, the Oscar viewing figures were quite steady till about 1990, 97, 98. And then they dropped in 1998. So um, maybe what you can say is that, you know, when Fukuyama predicted the end of history, um, what also set in was the end of Hollywood cinema, but just a bit delayed. So what you have is, you know, if you look at, for example, all the Oscar winners until sort of 1997, these were all Oscar films that you remember. So it's like Forrest Gump and Silent of the Lambs. You know, Oscar films that you would, you know, they have a traditional uh, Oscar feel to them. So mm -hmm. it was the usual story of the underdog or a historical figure that overcomes oppression and uh, strife. 
and uh, and the, these kind of films were, were were sort of real good. Um, yeah, yeah. What you would associate with an Oscar film, like a worthy film, but on the other hand, they also were big hits at the box office. So there there was an overlap between their popularity in viewing and you know outside in the cinema, as and their and the critical acclaim they had at the Oscars, and that peaked absolutely in 1997. Do you know which film won the Oscar in 1997? Titanic? Titanic, Titanic yeah. absolutely. So Titanic just broke all the records and it still has. So it was technically, artistically, it was right out there. It was, you know, boundary pushing and people loved it. And everybody went to see it, you know, from 9 to 90. Everybody watched Titanic. And then something happened. <laughs> the rot of postmodernism set in. <laughs> That's what I would call it. So after yeah, it was Shakespeare in Love and already nobody yeah. watched that. And then steadily, um, the, if, you, if you go through all the past Oscar winners, um, the viewing figures were really, really wobbly. And what is most interesting is that the discrepancy between um, the films that won and the viewing figures in the cinema go far, far apart. So the only sort of co convergence was again sort of 2003 with the return of the king, sort of the last of the Lord of the Ring films. Yeah. And so the last of the big cinemas where, where public taste and critical taste sort of overlapped. But from then on, honestly, what the people watched and the films that got Oscar nominated um, we're, we're completely different worlds. And so maybe you can say that there's some, let's say, overlap or some, some similarity going on in the institution of Hollywood in the same way that all the other institutions went through this kind of post-political uh, loss of meaning and uh, connection with the real, with the people, so to speak. They, they, they have lost purpose, they've lost meaning, they didn't, and they don't know how. So, so where does that leave us today with the Oscars in in twenty nineteen? Because I think that's a really interesting trajectory. Yeah. What 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 do they what do they mean today? Are they are they just well, at the floundering at the end of history? End of the end and... of the end of end of end of end of end of history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't well, mark us. Think... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's the good thing is I can say this and everybody will know what I mean. If I told this to anybody else, they would just go what. No. <laughs> you allowed to no. end of. You can have the end of the end of. That's it. Maximum of two. Uh, oh, oh God. Um, no, but um, what we have at the moment in in Hollywood is this uh, need for legitimacy that you find in politics and all other institutions where that have been I don't know, academically and intellectually lazy for the past twenty years, and they try as as all other institutions they try and fill it with narratives of I don't know, inclusivity and diversity and relevance. How do we make ourselves relevant? Yeah, we have to be more inclusive. We have to be more diverse. So, you know, basically using, um, uh, you know, like a completely weird um, answer to a weird problem. So, and this is why I think, as you say, there were so many black films in there. Rather than, I'm not, I don't want to be cynical, but I'm probably even more cynical than you because Black Panther was 
you know, the second highest grossing film last year. So everybody watched Black Panther. So rather than actually um, having it as a black token film in there, I think it's a populist token move. So, and as I said, I don't know, uh, you know, coming back to my, the beginning of what I wanted to say, that they wanted to introduce a new category in August, and that is most popular film. So, wow. <laughs> so they, they dropped that. But uh, so, and so, so the, the, the whole purpose of a kind of um, industry defining, defined award would, would have been gone. It would be like the, you know, like the, MTV um, Film Awards or so, MTV Video Awards, where, where, the, where the public vote for the, their most favorite film. So they would have, they wanted to have the category of most popular film. So uh, I think the, the, another aspect to this, I think also the other interesting development this year was the fact that streaming platforms were simultaneously uh, putting big budget uh, award category films out as they were going on the cinema. And uh, this has undercut some of the elements of going to the cinema if you can just stream it at home. And uh, I think there's also a bit of a responsiveness about need to make sure that films that, uh, be, that films that attracted people were need to be included. Because I think this streaming platform and the fact that some of these films were nominated is something which is also new. Yes, I think last year the the, the Mudbound that was nominated, which was a Netflix Netflix movie, and last year it was nominated for best cinematography which is interesting because it was a Netflix movie. And the Netflix movie that is nominated this year is Roma, which is, if not pure cinematography, you know, it's just, it lives off it. And I don't personally have a problem with having a cinematic experience on a small screen. You know, I think you can, you can have, uh, because I, it worked for me when I watched Roma, I thought, this is, this is great, I can do this. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's I watched Roma last I watched Roma last night and felt the same mm -hmm. that it was it's like yeah, there's something missing here because it's, I mean it's obviously not a plot driven film so you know you kind of need something a little bit grander to wow you you know at least and the cinematography is there and it's beautiful and I was like nah, kind of maybe wish I'd watch this <laughs> in the cinema I didn't have the option to and uh, and then I went and read some reviews and they all picked up on this uh, so I guess it makes sense in that case um, I actually think the films which most surprised me and which I liked, I mean, I really liked The Favourite and also that was because of the cinematography because I think a lot of the, the yes. content and the plot of a lot of the kind of main Oscar-nominated films are pretty obvious and often terrible. And so the ones which I appreciated <laughs> were the ones which I appreciated for technical aspects more than for, you know, the, the kind of content, if you can call it that. Absolutely. I, I think... None I think no, no, I think you're right with The Favourite, which I also think was great because of its, its yeah cinematic aspects it, to me it looked like a standard kubrick film from sort of 1972 yeah, yeah? i i was just ruined for me by the performances which i didn't like at all so i had the discrepancy between oh i like looking at it but as soon as people were on it i was like Ugh. <laughs> um, well, we discussed separately about disliking but, but, the the overexposed olivia coleman though i did think she was fantastic in that so Oh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I, 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 because I have to think, because I do a lot of acting teaching and therefore I am always really um, interested in what works and what doesn't and why does she not work for me and but everybody else seems to love her. And I think, oh, no, she's just awful. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that 
you know, it's probably horses for courses with this one. But I also liked, um, you know, if if we want to talk about controversial performances, um, Rami Malik in Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, everybody I talked to, oh no, that's a horribly um, tacky performance. I loved it. I thought there was, you know, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody as a film didn't quite work for me, but the performance of it. You know, him as Freddie Mercury, I thought was fantastic because it was over the top. It was um, um, a performance and it was unreal and it was um, not uh, methody. So I thought, oh, this is this this is kind of the, the kind of OTTness that I want from a Freddie Mercury representation, something that is in itself um, not real. So something that is performative. And this is why the, the film in itself clashed for me, because it was really tame, you know, really tame story of, of Queen. I thought I could really have pushed the boat out with that one. Well, I mean, you, you're obviously put yourself very clearly in the position, uh, you know, you advocate the position that, you know, it's horses for courses. It's what you expect from a film. Mm. You don't want it. You want it to at least provide what it promises and, you know, not undersell and so on. But to move on to to the more political matter, I guess, in terms of something which maybe you don't want, uh, I'm going to pass on to Ben here. Um, well, of course, 2018 was a year of political disasters and setbacks mostly. And uh, a lot of our um, commentary of this year was sort of in the culture wars. And I think more so than even uh, previous presidents, uh, Trump has become sort of a singular figure in American and international culture wars. And the Academy has definitely uh, tried to intervene, as well as many filmmakers in this culture war, by selecting films which had something to say about Trump. For instance, uh, Black Klansman, explicitly at the end of the film, one of the films nominated, Spike Lee, uh, ends with a sort of montage in Charlottesville, which is definitely trying to make a point about Trump and the subject matter of the film. Is this a year in which uh, Trump has come to dominate not only, it seems, our collective unconscious, but our attempts to uh, escapism by going to the cinema? <laughs> I, I think I think you can say yes, because obviously, you know, he's actually in some of the movies. So he's in Black Clansman. And he's also in Vice, if you remember. He's in the end, you know, in the in the they've cut him into that. So the films are definitely Trumpian. You could, even the favorite, you know, it's about despotism. You know, there's there's a clear link there. Um a star is born, escapism. So and I think the the kind of you know because I really like Black Clansman, although as we all know, it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer. And, you know, why do I like Black Clansman and I didn't like, uh, what's it called, the water film from last year? Um, <laughs> see, it's, it's already, the shape of water. See, it's already sort of uh, nicely, yeah, I, I really nicely like gone. Clansman. I really didn't like it. Uh, I loved it. I thought because, um, as, you, as I say, you know, um, like Shape of Water, it is... You know, it wears its politics on its sleeve. But why did Black Klansman work for me and Chip Water didn't? Because Black Klansman is a good film. It's so a film as an art object has to be bigger than the politics of the filmmaker, which Shape of Water wasn't. It was all the kind of cinematic language and performances only served to hammer down the the points that the filmmaker wanted to make, the metaphors, the visuals. 
the the, the music. Whereas Black Klansman, um, you know, was was far bigger than that. It was a really good script writing. It was very funny, and I was really into it. I thought in the end, oh my God, they're going to find out he's, you know, who he is. And so I was really into it. And I think that's because Spike Lee, despite being probably a big dick. Um, he's actually a really good filmmaker, and he knows how to create. Well, he tension. seems to be. He's, he's, had, he's had a lot of stinkers recently. I mean, he's made some great ones, but there's been a lot of awful films he's made over the last few years. So this is like. <laughs> a, I mean, the thing that pissed me off so much about Black Klansman, and maybe this is just because uh, I, mm-hmm. I kind of am a historian, is that it completely gets the historical context wrong. Because if you were yeah. to watch the film, you would think it's set in the early se- it's set in the early seventies. But in actual fact, the events and the rise of David Duke occurs in the late 80s. So you have juxtaposed the tail end of the civil rights struggle, the emergence of black power radicalism in a different context to what David Duke was doing. In this case, you have George Wallace was actually the figure in this in this period rather than David Duke. And suddenly you have stats like all these different historical facts jumbled together. So if you're trying to unpack the historical context of what actually happened in these events, it's, and uh, you've got a complete jumble. I mean, it was entertaining, but in terms of like a uh, what it was trying to do, it was uh, one of those films that takes too many historical liberties to really make a serious political point about the country. <laughs> What's well, the type of film which also really shouldn't be taking historical liberties? You know, yeah. You, historians, well, I think, historians yeah. against uh, anachronistic films. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a pedantic yeah, so, point at all. It's important. My, yeah, but my, because what you're really talking about in, the, in this context is <laughs> the 70s is a period of the rise of the new rights and Reaganism, which had the sort of like on the side, the attempts of the David Duke and others to make certain racist aspects after the civil rights movement mainstream again using a different language. And in this case, you've got like the height of these violent battles in the early 70s, which is a completely different thing. So it's like a one. These two contexts are like uh Water and oil. One doesn't happen without the other in terms of the process. <laughs> yeah. So so I I know, but I don't care because it's a film and because Spike Lee uses it, you know, he you can mix time lines, scales for whatever works. And he makes it work. This is why it works, because he doesn't um you know, he's not a slave to history, which is what film is about. So you don't, if you go to films for history lessons, I think you're, you know, you, you might be on, you can look forever and you will not find a satisfying experience. I think watch it for what it is and enjoy because it's really funny. Well, and, so so that, that might actually work as a nice segue onto a question which I wanted to ask you because uh, I guess we're seeing a lot of, woke film criticism uh ones which take Mm. films to task for representing the wrong sort of values or for characterizing the human experience in a way which they find uh it doesn't fit with the way that they think things should be um so i wanted to discuss that also in in light of kind of trump because is it possibly the fact that a lot of kind of this form of woke criticism which you know, has a has a bit of a history over the past decade or so, um, actually now kind of bearing fruit in terms of the object of its critique. That is to say, like films are now kind of seeking to respond to that and incorporate that. Uh, we can think maybe about Me Too as one example of that. Um, or in yeah, terms but, of racial I, representation yeah. in films and so on. So, as I said, you know, if, if we are at the end of history and 
basically the, the, the creative classes are the classes that are at a loss to find any connection with people. And as you can see from Black Klansmen, their answer is that, you know, the people are, you know, Trump voters and they've always been because the institutions are racist. So, so you know, Spike Lee is, is a Black Lives Matter guy, so don't forget that. And he will, you know, read history backwards like they all do to, to serve this kind of worldview where... Um, the, the solution to this political deadlock that we're in is nicer politics and, you know, a nice president. Obama, nice guy. Um, politics doesn't matter. As long as the a, a person is nice, the politics will be nice. Um, Trump is a pig. Politics, probably quite similar to Obama's, but because he's not a nice guy, he's, he's a bad president, he's MAGA, he's racism. And so their, their answer to this is the same as any institution will, you know, has, has decided for itself to make itself relevant to the people, you know, by being inclusive, by, um, you, know, you know, by being representative. And with cinema, it's even more literal because it actually literally represents things. So it shows mm. things. So... Um, the the, the 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 necessity for you know this kind of the liberal middle classes and their answer to political problems in representation uh, lies within things like cinema so it has to have to literally represent uh, their their politics that that then becomes the politics but I think that's what irks so much about these battles of representation in film is it's precisely the crudeness of it because it's not that listen Hollywood hasn't paid enough attention to certain stories and they've for example only portrayed black people in a certain negative light and actually they should be telling other stories which exist okay cool I'm I'm fine with that that's actually a very valid critique the problem is that it's precisely in the literalism of it that it has to in any context be, you know, have a one-to-one, -one, very literal representation, you know, count up the numbers, are there an equal number of women and men, and so <laughs> on. And it's like, that's absurd. That I mean, the world doesn't look like that. So you're actually doing a disservice to the world by not representing it. Yeah, so... Uh, so yeah. I think there's another issue here as well. Uh, um, that, in fact, Hollywood doesn't do political films really well. It's the exception that the, any of them turn out de half decent, uh, because it's so literal-minded. And the second thing is, like, for instance, Hollywood cannot do anti-war films at all. If anyone's actually think of it, like all the anti-war films I can remember or supposed ones, for instance, are like Vietnam parables in which Americans are the real victims. So you can never get around certain political points in Hollywood. It's precisely the ability to, in, to not make certain films. People are worried about uh, losing sponsors or markets. And that makes it so bloody literal minded. And that's boring. It's also with that with the war point, Ben, that war on film looks pretty dramatic. It's quite, you know, it's quite a cinematic, uh, quite easy thing to make, quite spectacular. Yeah, so what's even more if fun, war show, or anti-war? Exactly. <laughs> if you're trying to show the horrors of war, you just end up with a very gripping, potentially quite horrible film, but one that's still yeah, a spectacle. Take Saving Private Ryan. The first 20 minutes are like probably one of the best sequences ever recorded of war. But the rest of the film is terrible. It's this awful story about like, <laughs> more war. This one dude, which makes no sense, which is the worst sort of like Spielberg soppiness 
But yet, no one really remembers how bad the rest of the film was because the first 20 minutes were good enough to make everyone forget about the rest. I like Steven Spielberg. I think he's really good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that, but I think the the idea of of um, um, try, trying to find your history in cinema is is a is a, is a is you know prone to failure and that goes for for historians as well as um millennials who who want to be re redo history you know through cinema make it right and so there, there there's a and because of what you were saying at the beginning the idea of um trying to fix the world through this kind of um casting and uh, writing decisions um very much coincides with a, with a generation that has been brought up with the kind of film criticism that understands film through a kind of you know cinematic language that is you know comes from you know film studies courses which teach Laura Mulvey and this is how uh, objects are created on films through the gaze and it depends who looks at whom in what way and who is being shown uh, more dominantly in this way and so you know you get all these kind of film students analyzing who is in the foreground and who is looking at whom and then constructing a kind of ideological <laughs> answer out of this and you just go no it's actually not in there it's it's you know it's it's, it's a weird weird way of reading film but this is um you know, this has fed a whole sort of generation of people, and they they can, they will then read film in these kind of really narrow ways. So what has happened is that there's a really narrow reading of film as art. That's what happened, and everybody is doing critical analysis. And as you know, 99% of critical analysis is really shit. Yeah, so <laughs> it is terrible. So, and because they want to do this, they, they leave out any kind of artistic merit and, and artistic language and artistic um, features that you should look at first. So the, the kind of pre-ideological thing that film is, you know, I'm probably so, being... Sorry, are you, say, are you saying that, they, they you know, critics take film too seriously and at the same time, maybe not seriously enough? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, think, what I what, they, what is exactly they, the problem? It, I mean, is it that they don't treat it as art first and foremost, and then examine its technical and aesthetic qualities first, uh, or is it that they try to put too much importance on the meaning of the film, or you know, it, the more contextual aspects or the politics of the film, what it represents, and so on? I think you have a big trend of this, especially with loads of online sort of film criticism, and you can see that old film critics are being constantly pushed to analyze films in terms of how they represent and uh, in what way they represent through casting and film directors. So there's the, a the constant line in there somewhere, oh, by the way, there's not enough women in it. Or, um, by the way, the, the representation of this is, is terrible. So there, there's, a, there, you know, there, there's a big... Um, uh, big school of film criticism that's probably the most dominant one which um yeah lo looks at it, the ideological role of this film you know is it you know does it do this does it do that rather than looking at is it something that is you know what are the criterias of art let's say so one of the main criterias of art is it bigger than its own dimensions so is, is it greater than the parameters in which it works 
has it got so, more ideas and is you know so just, I, just just yeah. just to move on to some of the specific films that we we wanted mm-hmm. to to oh, yeah, to chat on. about one of one of them and it, it as you were saying that it made me think of um of green book so this is an in, i thought this was an, an interesting film because there were some well very many problems with it but it had two quite compelling performances in it and the two the two main main leads so what do you think this film tells us if anything about i don't know to put it a bit grandly the status of the actor in contemporary cinema because you you mentioned earlier you do a lot of Mm. acting teaching what can uh, what can our (laughs) listeners learn from from watching this, (laughs) this film about good or or bad or great acting. I don't. I don't, I've not. I've not seen much of Green Book. I must say, I've only watched half of it. I'm sorry, but um, I, they're, they're... which which half did you did you uh, <laughs> leave early or arrive late? No, no. I've got it on. I've got it on my computer, and I only watched the first half. I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll guess the second half. No, I, think, I mean it um... is one of those films where you can totally guess the second half. Uh, and yet, and yet, you know, I wanted to hate it. I think it's a film which I most wanted to dislike. Exactly. And I loved it, and I enjoyed it, and I was like, oh hugs uh, and i hated myself <laughs> for feeling that way uh, but it's and, and do you know why because i think that is the most traditional hollywood film that's on the list you know yeah. that is going mm-hmm. straight back to the 90s but with a digital camera uh-huh. you know it, it has got the, the it has the same narrative writing um redemptive yeah, elements so, so, re- and redemption moral arc and like like a typical hollywood film and this is why it, it's, it yeah. works. Yeah, with and just, it just about work. enough surprises to to keep you on your toes. I mean, it more or less exactly happens as you would expect it to, and yet there's just one or two little moments where you're like, ah, oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's just fodder. Yeah, but it's it's but it's it's so well executed. I mean, particularly in terms of the two lead actors, that you kind of go, well, that's that's good. I mean, it's not grand art, but you know, in a kind of very middle brow sense, yeah. it's decent. Yeah, it, it the has... thing is, it works. It's, it, the thing is, I think we come across very rarely across films that work anymore. You know, that have got a beginning, a middle, and an end that are sort of traditionally structured, and you just go, "Oh, right, oh, this is what it's like." Mm. <laughs> so it also has Viggo Mortensen's uh, Italian American accent, which is pretty good. Um, there's a, <laughs> there's a one thing which it does, and Alex, I think you hit the nail on the head. This was a film that I really wanted to dislike, but. I couldn't. It wasn't. I couldn't find it in me that source of hate. Um, but <laughs> the, I guess the question is: is is good acting relatively less important when you have relatively more blockbusters featuring um, characters like superheroes that don't need to be acted? Are there cult, are there cultural differences in in what good good acting is? Because yeah. it's quite striking yes. that you actually see a, a film that has a big performance in it. Um, and you and you actually think this isn't completely overblown, um, quite kind of pantomime acting. I think um, there, there's two things. The first thing is that there's a massive difference between acting and performance, and people get these things confused all the time. So acting is a skill. So it's the skill to be in, so much in control of your body that you can uh, emote a different humanity that is not your own quite spontaneously and that that you have to be able to you know that's that's a profession and then you have to do it with other people as well whereas a performance is basically um everything around you know it's basically doing that 
in a perform, you know, in a, in a play or in a film. So whatever is good acting, you know, there's the old saying that even a donkey is a great actor in a film because everything else has to work with it. So The Rock is a fantastic actor because he he works in these kind of parameters. I agree with that. The Rock is a great actor. <laughs> yes. The Rock is... He can't, he, he can't make a bad film. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, great. Yeah. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger exactly. as well. Great actor. He was a character actor. So when he's put in his correct role, like Conan the Barbarian, Total Recall, uh, True Lies, he kills his role. He does what he's supposed to do. The Terminator. Exactly. And you can't fault him. Well, it's like, well, Absolutely. I think Joe Pesci is the greatest actor of all time. I mean, come on. Anyone can fault Joe Pesci role better than that. So I just well, have to make look- a quick point on Skyscraper, yeah. which is a fantastic <laughs> film. I, Absolutely. I, genuinely- I agree. As I said, I had a good time this year at the cinema. There was a lot of good films. And a film, a year where you can watch The Meg in the cinema, that's a good year for cinema. Yeah, sorry. Good shark film. I haven't seen one since Deep Blue Sea. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you're making this point about about acting um, against performers. I mean, is is there a general shift in the balance between the two in in cinemas? Is that the... I think... Uh, well, the, the, it's always a really interesting one, and you know, the trends change. So, um, what, for example, if you look at Roma, these people are not actors, but they, but they are really good and really watchable. Yeah, so they're now mm. actors because they've been in a film. So you have to call it acting. But so I, I've been looking at the history of acting and what people thought is good acting. And you, mm-hmm. so from sort of the nine, from the turn of the century, when you had actors like Sarah Bernard, you know, and people thought she was wonderful. But if you would see her perform today, you would just go, what the fuck is this? You know, it's like really bizarre way of acting where you, nobody would recognize this. And the same, you know, throughout the ages. So you, even till the 1950s, if you watch like a play, from the 1950s with like big names, even, you know, Larry Oliver at the National. You would just go, oh, this looks a bit stiff, doesn't it? <laughs> but people thought he was brilliant. He's like the best actor in the world. And even today you have got, um, you know, yeah, as you say, Joe Pesci or so. And what yeah. is... Um, can we talk about yeah. acting? Let's, let's talk about Vice, which is another <laughs> film which I think was quite interesting because it relied on the Christian Bale, who, of course goes over the top in many of his performances for his role. In this mm-hmm. case, I think while there were, there's two interesting things. One is uh, Christian Bale's performance of what is supposed to be a singularly unlikable man in Dick Cheney and the extent of what the sort of like method acting uh, means today, which it's, I'm not sure how in fashion it is. And secondly, I think the other thing about Vice, which I quite appreciated, even if I had uh, problems with some aspects of the film, is that it uses the springboard of the degeneracy and nihilism of the Nixon years, in which people like Roger Stone and others who became key to the Trump campaign uh, later as the springboard for its commentary on politics, which is something which uh, is kind of interesting to say the least. Um, Can I just continue with the other question? Yes, go for it. Because you asked me what is good acting. And so, you know, we all experience these kind of different performances and what they all have in common. You know, they all they interviewed loads of people and you think, why, why do you think these are good actors? And 
they all say, oh, yeah, they're so realistic. So, so act, good acting has to be an experience of truth. So you, find, you think somebody's a good actor if you experience truth. So, and for me, this is why over-the-top um, non-method stuff is, is really good acting because I find that in the, in the sort of clownish um, abstraction, I think there's a greater truth. So I see a lot of truth in this. Lots of people like n- not to see any acting. So they like to see a really naturalist translation of this kind of what they want, what they hear and what they see. There are definitely cultural differences in what people think is good acting. Yeah, so what what do you experience as truth? Um, and I, I think my, my, my preference for kind of, <laughs> you know, overt performances has a lot to do with, you know, first of all, I come from a theater. Secondly, I like modernist performances. And thirdly, I'm European. So I've got a language thing that makes me want to, you know, I, I always find this kind of uh, directness, uh, truthful. I like this is why I like the Bohemian Rhapsody performance. It's it's grotesque, and I'm to me it's really truthful. Coming to Vice, which I thought was great, it was like an Adam Curtis film as a film. So I thought it was a great it was a great story, and so so Christian Bale doing his uh, you know eating a few burgers there. Um, I thought I thought it was really nice, and uh, you know making this horrible man. Uh, accessible in a way. I don't know if it would have worked if he hadn't been so grotesque. You know, he had to not be Christian. But I, th- I think he, he, you needed that makeup to not see Christian Bale, and I think that really worked. Sometimes, you know, that was really good makeup. Is I mean, isn't there a yeah, danger I mean, the- of, with with Christian in Christian Bale's case is just him gaining or losing a lot of weight because that's all he really seems to do nowadays. He in machinist he. <laughs> sheds tons and then he just puts it on i mean is that it reminds me of there's a, an anecdote of uh, when they were doing marathon man Lawrence olivier and dustin hoffman had that mm-hmm. that, that scene and I, I basically dustin hoffman stayed up all night and ran around um central park i think it was at 3 a.m so that he would look like he'd been up all night and he'd sweating and then <laughs> Lawrence olivier was like why did you do that um, and then Hoffman was like, oh, to make my performance like as, as authentic as possible. And Olivier was like, well, why don't you just act? Um, <laughs> so, so there you go. You've got two different acting styles, which, which have different purposes and they tell different kinds of truth. You can see this really, this kind of sort of 1950s um, English theatre style and American method acting really well in The Streetcar Named Desire when you've got this famous scene between Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee, who plays uh, the Southern Belle and Marlon Brando plays this kind of laborer. And she has this, and here the, the very contrasting acting styles um, support the kind of character and the truth that these characters tell. Yeah, so, so you've got Really different bizarre. Why do you think they hire all these English guys to be bad guys in American Hollywood films? Because they're under the misconception that all English people are, are evil. That's no, the- <laughs> I tell you why. <laughs> well, they are evil. But um, although English and American are probably, you know, are very much the same language, but they do perform differently. So there's always a duplicity in English. You know that you don't take you know that that 
they don't mean what they say. There's a duplicity. It's it's mm. fake. Whereas you don't have that Gosh. in America. I know, but it's true. But the, this is why it works. And so in American, you know, you don't have this. It's a very much wearing your heart on your sleeve. There's no hiding, and it's it's very straightforward. Yeah, um, I like that. I like that point. Yes. So there's the, you know, this is why you cast certain people for certain roles. You know, casting is storytelling. You know, Joss Whedon famously said this. So you can, not everybody can act anything. You have to cast the right person for the job, and you cannot outact the role. So you cannot hire any actor to play any role. It just doesn't work. You have to cast right. Right, and that and that cuts very much against the grain of a lot of, well, I guess what we've just called woke film criticism. I mean, there might be a better way to characterize that. But another aspect of, of this same sort of trajectory in film criticism is something that I referred to very briefly earlier, but it, which I found in, I, I ended up writing a review, or I guess what you could call a counter review, if that if that such a thing exists, um, of First Man, the Damien Chazelle film about a biopic oh, yeah. of, uh, of Neil Armstrong. Where there, there was um, a very well-known reviewer who uh, took the film to task for representing a very repressed version of masculinity, which didn't fit in with our therapeutic conception of the self that we have today. And it basically, it didn't feel like a very 60s film. It didn't feel like 60s and groovy in the way that he felt it should. In fact, it felt very 50s and repressed. <laughs> and it's like, well, I mean, you know, the guy's an astronaut who has to reach the highest levels of self-discipline possible to achieve something uh, completely new, completely, you know, completely almost impossible um, in in the eyes of previous generations. So, you know, depicting that uh, and depicting that sense of self-domination, I think, was a completely appropriate thing to do. And of course, this is very typical of Damien Chazelle. I mean, it's one of the things he loves to focus on, on, on perseverance and determination. And somehow the fact that that offended contemporary sensibilities, rather than being something interesting about the film, it was taken as a as something on which to criticize the film for that it was that it failed to to represent the way that we feel people should be, which is a, which is an oddly moralistic um, sort of requirement to impose on a film, isn't it? Yes, and I think that that speaks for a lot of film criticism at the moment that it didn't make me feel right. Yeah. yeah? So the film the film made me feel wrong, and this is why it's bad. So and as you say, I I thought First Man was my film highlight of the year. Mm. It was fantastic. It was a great, as because it worked very much as a cinematic experience. It was as you know, film people like to say it's affective. It makes you feel things. So you sit there and you are you know this rattling uh, uh, rocket and you just go and the music and the um, visuals and the camera. It makes you feel afraid and it makes you feel. Mm triumphant and it makes you feel brave and these are you know and I came out feeling triumphant brave and and forward looking and these are things that are really um yeah you know frowned upon almost today yeah. you know you're not allowed to feel these things and so I can understand that feel many people when came out of this feeling uh, oh my god <laughs> I don't like this it makes me feel you know it makes me feel things mm. so you know, it, it makes you feel not the right things. It makes you feel, you know... Well, and, he, and he didn't have... There wasn't enough of a personal backstory. There wasn't enough of him emoting over the death of his daughter uh, in a very... Even, even though it does demonstrate that he feels that loss quite acutely because he doesn't 
demonstrate that in the you know emotionally correct fashion mm-hmm. then it's well, then it's criticized know, and it, and it's a bit like say, the right yeah. the, there's also the right sorts of you can feel brave but it has to be it has to relate to some personal overcoming it can't be in relation to some external conquest because that's too you know like old style western films you know that that's something that's really frowned upon it's seen as ipso facto colonialist which is an odd well, way of treating these we're coming, we're coming back to the kind of idea of representation and the kind of film criticism people have grown up with this kind of the, the postmodern notion that you have to tell the backstory to justify you know to, 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 to justify the characters to tell their story their, 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 their life so um, you know what Zizek calls in filling in the gaps you know, the, so in po- in modernist storytelling, people you just get the story and you have to fill in the background with your own imagination. So it's, it's a kind of subjective void that you have to that that you have to work at. Mm-hmm. So, but the postmodern film criticism is no, it's going to be shown to you by the film. It, it helps. You know, it the, these stories have to be told. So, you, for example, in the uh, the latest. Um, was it? Oh yeah, a picture of Dorian Gray film that was in the cinema. So they showed the backstory of Dorian Gray and his psychological the abuse by the father and the reasons why he's become a maniac. So, and but it's not in the book because that's what makes him a monster. You don't know. But the, the modern urge to this, the, the postmodernist no urge is to fill this in. And this is why, from the same guy who um, criticized First Man, uh, he criticized Roma as well. For not showing the backstory of um, Chloe, the, the the server. Wow. Who, yeah, you know. And I mean, so I watched this film this... last night, and that's something that you obviously infer. I mean, she speaks her her native tongue uh, with the with the other fellow employee in the household. I mean, you can kind of you can kind of surmise these things. It's <laughs> I guess I this is, this is it, another it, this is another example of that kind of boneheaded literalism in, and, in a lot of criticism and it, today. It's, it's 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 a philis it's a philistine world that and. You know, and you have to really fight it. And so the, the idea that, you know, her story is not shown, you know, we just uh, see her in relation to her um, employers. We, we don't see her as a full person. So people, you know, people come up, come up with this expectancy of um, being told the stories of other people. Every story has to be told and to be shown. And coming back to a kind of film analysis where... Um, yeah, no, the gaze is the, is the determinant of uh, storytelling. And you just go, oh, it just doesn't work in the real world. <laughs> do, you think this is, do you think this is also partly because people are less um, willing to accept structures in general in the abstract, so things like economic structures, as determining of, of, in, of characters? So you have to have an entirely spelt-out biographical trajectory because people are less willing to accept social types as um as as actors um probably but i think they they do love their types you know the types work you know there's a reason why they're stereotypes because they work and you you use them as a cipher in film and you just are only allowed to use the right ones or you know in 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 the 90s when it still worked you could use them in a postmodern way but you can't you know the postmodern irony that you had it's completely lost. You cannot. The, the, many people won't get that you're doing a uh, a reference to something, or that you are um, explaining something through something else. So the, the, there's a real um, uh, fear of 
um, yeah, there's a real fear of, of subtlety, a real fear of um, leaving, leaving subjective gaps of meaning in things. Because, you know, Nazis could come and fill it in with their horrible ideology. And, they, you know, this is, this is why, this is the, the logic of Spike Lee in Klansman. You know, there was a, a, a kind of a gap of meaning and who came, you know, the, the Nazis came back and put, put MAGA hats on everybody. So, you know, you have to fill in the gaps of history. Otherwise, you know, they, they, you're not in control of it. You have to spell it out, or somebody else will Ex- spell it out for exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Right. So, so talking about spelling you, it you out. Don't, you, yes. So, so talking about spelling it out. Uh, let's move on to the final section here. I do want to talk about what we thought were our best films this year as a way of wrapping up. I've already said my bit about First Man, which I think was mine. Um, I'll come back to Marin at the end in case she wants to add anything other than than First Man. Um, ben, first of all, what was your favorite film this year? Well, I had two. My first one is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I thought was another Coen Brothers masterpiece. It's, again, one of those films which doesn't offer any easy answers. It's at times absolutely ridiculous and utterly depressing. It's brutal. It doesn't really have any, it doesn't fill in the gaps for you. It's it's just one of those really effective pieces of filmmaking for me that left me with this. This is kind of why I like to watch films. Uh, I thought in particular from its sort of cartoonish first sequence with uh, Buster Scruggs, the aforementioned character, uh, singing his way to heaven to these sort of absurdist piece of violence or this uh, every main character gets killed, to Tom Waits, who really proves he can actually act uh, in his sequence, which was amazing. The other film which I quite enjoyed, which is a more left of center, is a film called Mandy, which is kind mm. of, Best way to describe it is if, like, you let David Lynch make a metal music video in the 1980s starring a heavily drugged-up Nick Cage and casting the villains as a bunch of psychotic hippies, which is always a good character <laughs> for me. It's just absolutely bizarre. It's completely ridiculous and doesn't take itself too seriously and is definitely, like, worth watching. It's also something which is, like, dark and ridiculous, which I just don't see something that's effectively put up like this anymore very very often it feels like one of those weird movies that came out in like the 70s or late 80s that uh kind of becomes a cult classic but it's kind of in 2018 uh, i mean i would highly recommend people watch it especially if they like i think nicholas cage is actually a good actor he's just had to be uh, play himself in a lot of very bad films because he spent all his money on castles and tigers definitely second second mandy um and i think you're absolutely right it does feel like this is some weird cult film why are they re-releasing this for the 25th anniversary like no it's got nick cage it's it's modern day um but my my favorite film was probably a film that for most of it was quite boring um if anybody's seen wild pear tree listeners or, or or anybody in this conversation um without giving anything away it's a quite a dull slow very slow film um that makes it that makes you think a little bit about what it is to experience boredom in in the cinema it also enter the void and love by gaspar noy made made me think about this as well but then it just all turns on this extraordinary final sequence which um i obviously won't give anything away and then it makes you think about the whole of the rest of the film and it did make me realize that you can spend over three hours in a cinema and most of it, you just want to check your phone. But then there's um, a high point And then you remember that that film 
for that uh, for the whole of that that year as being the best one. So go and check it out. Anybody who hasn't who hasn't seen it, but stay till the end. Don't leave after two hours forty five minutes because it's still still got something to give. <laughs> That's our big takeaway. Stay till the end. Uh, stay yeah, till the well, end, folks. Same with pod- don't, don't, don't check your phone. It's the same yeah. with podcasts, right? You know, yeah. You've got to keep, the, the best, keep going to the The best stuff's of- often at the end, yeah. It takes a while to warm up, and then, you're, and then you get there, and then, like, you know, you explode onto the scene in the last 20 minutes, and it's putting a hell of a performance. So, Marin, uh, what about you? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I must say, yeah, again, first man, because it was quite, you know, it was one of these cinematic things where you just feel and you don't have to really think about stuff, which is, <laughs> which is nice. That's why I like to go to it. But it makes you feel interesting things and it makes you feel stuff that you don't want to feel. And it makes you feel, um, and uh, I like the story and because I've got personal interest in uh American space exploration. So I really liked that one. I liked a German film that was called In Den Gangen, so In the Isles. If you want to check that out, it's quite a very sweet film. Um, and yeah, I, I, I must say I did like Black Clansman. I thought it was, a, it was just a well-made film. I'm really sorry. It was good. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I had a lot of fun in the cinema this year. So there was lots of fun films on. You know, the, I, I enjoyed Mission Impossible this year. I thought I always liked Tom Cruise, I think. You know, it, people talking about bad acting. I mean, he's not he's not a bad actor, but that, put a camera on that man. You will he delivers. You know, that is just worthwhile just having him in front of a camera. It's just Magnolia worth all the money. Him jumping before he jumped on the couch. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I like him. I, I just think some people just work in front of the camera. They just, the camera, you know, this old saying, oh, the camera loves them. The camera loves them. It, it, there's something ethereal that you cannot actually buy or put your finger on. And it, this exists. And I think this is one of the beauties of cinema. There's some, some sort of real magic there. I, I think with Tom Cruise, it's because of his organs. He's got really good organ levels. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right so last shout before we close this off Marin, what's going to be the big controversy of the oscars it's, it's already it hasn't already happened in that they cancelled the oh, well they wanted to cancel the the um transmission of best cinematography and best editing and some other technical uh, awards which they already took back but the the <laughs> you know so, so, so the, so the, panem- it, the polemic the controversial thing will end up being that the Oscars are against their own art form, which, you know. Basically, that they've cancelled themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so the Oscars have actually cancelled themselves out of relevance. By trying to be so relevant, I think it's a beautiful example of, if you want to try to be relevant, and, and, and how much out of touch the creating classes are. Yeah? In the same way, any kind of liberal classes are in, in terms of, uh, grasping what's actually going on and how out of touch they are. This is a beautiful example. I mean, if it wasn't so tragic. It would be, uh, it would be funny. That's great. That might be a good point to finish on. The Oscars are auto cancelled. Marin, thanks very much for joining <laughs> us to talk about film once again. Anytime. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>